Now, the underlying premise of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, you know, my understanding is that Jesus is talking to us about what it means or what it looks like to be a member of his kingdom. It was either John or Micah, one of the two, said that, uh, you know, every kingdom has expectations on its citizens, and Jesus does as well. And so in this Sermon on the Mount, he is giving to us his expectations of the kind of men and women that we ought to be as his followers, and, and what we ought to be doing as his followers. Jesus started with the character that we're to have. You'll remember, he said, blessed are you when you have a character of seeking after righteousness. Blessed are you when you have a character of recognizing your poverty. Blessed are you when you are merciful. You know, blessed are you when you are persecuted and you don't revile because to you belongs the kingdom of God. And from there, Jesus not only looked at our character, but he, he then started to talk to us about, about the kind of calling that he has on our life. And he says that we are to be salt and light. You probably remember that. And then the, the last two weeks, we, Jesus has begun to zero down on or hone down on some specific issues that relate to us as kingdom followers. And I agree with Micah in part last week when he said that what he and John did in the previous two weeks has been to give us an illustration of what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. You'll remember that Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to be a part of my kingdom. And we talked about what that meant. And we said that it could mean that our righteousness has to be a righteousness of the heart and not just in the letter of the law. It's not about rule keeping. It's about what comes from our heart. But we also said that Jesus may have been implying that our righteousness has to be imputed righteousness. That's a big word. It means given to us, placed upon us, that our righteousness has to be a righteousness that's not our own, but that's given given to us. Now, again, this is for those of you that are our guests, and it's a reminder for the rest of us. The gospel that we believe here at Bacon's Castle is that our the righteousness that saves us, the righteousness that forgives us, the righteousness um, that gives us immortality and eternal life is not a righteousness that we acquire by what we do, but it's a righteousness that's given to us because of what someone else did on our behalf. It's the righteousness of Christ that's placed on us by faith in Him. Now, I want to, it's not in my notes, but I want to add to that. This morning in prayer time, uh, at the eight o'clock prayer time, you know, Lord kind of reminded me of something. The gospel is everything I just said. It is the good news that God gives us immortality and that he forgives us our sin. And at the great and final resurrection and the judgment of God, we shall inherit and receive immortality and we shall lose our sinful nature and all of that. But the gospel also is this, and listen carefully to what I want to say. The gospel also is that God is enabling us by his spirit as his followers to acquire God's design from the very beginning, to live according to God's design. Let's face it, all of us are broken, right? All of us are broken. And, and God's design, what we experience in life and the brokenness of our sin is not what God designed at the beginning. But the gospel enables us to begin to recover God's design in our life. So the good news isn't just that one day I'm going to have eternal life. The gospel is that God is, is working in my life today to bring about the design of God every day in my life. And that's really, really, really going to relate to what I'm going to say to you in just a few moments when we talk about the subject that Jesus is looking 
looking at this morning if you haven't read ahead. So the gospel is that God gives us immortality, that he forgives us our sins, not because of righteousness of our own, but because of the righteousness of Christ. It's given to us by faith. But also by faith, Jesus is enabling us to live in such a way that we're recovering God's design in our life daily as we follow him. Now let's turn our attention to today's subject. Today's subject is divorce, if you haven't read ahead. Jesus wants his followers to understand how we as his followers should view divorce. And the distilled, essential, bottom line truth, bottom line principle is this. We as followers of Jesus should not divorce. I'm going to leave that statement unequivocally defined. I'm going to talk about it and you're going to see that I do have a little bit of caveat to it. But but I don't want to minimize what Jesus desires of of us as his followers. And that is that we do not divorce. That is what God desires of the men and women who follow him. The text is Matthew 5, 31. It was also said, Jesus is speaking, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me tell you that I don't believe this is all that Jesus said about divorce on the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, even in Matthew's elongated (laughs) recording of it, it it only takes you a few minutes to read it. And so I don't think that Jesus, in fact, it seems that Jesus would speak for hours. In fact, he spoke so long on the, on the hill that the 5,000, you know, didn't go home. They didn't have a place to eat. The same thing with the 4,000. And so, and so really, you know, Jesus spoke for elongated amounts of time. This is not all that Jesus said on the subject uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But this is what's recorded for us, and so we have to deal with it. Now, I want to tell you that I find it hard to talk about divorce. I find it hard to talk about divorce. You know why? Because so many lives have been touched by divorce. And, And what's worse or what's harder for me is that so many of you that are part of my family... That, that I love, that I've, I've been in your lives forever, you know, and you've been in my life forever, you've been touched by divorce. And because I know you, uh, divorce leaves. Listen, don't, don't any one of you be self-deceived. Divorce leaves in its wake a lot of damage, okay? And I know because of that, some of you feel guilty, you feel guilty, you, you feel like failures because of your divorce. So my goal today is, believe me, it's not at all to add to your guilt. I do not want to do that. So I hate to talk about divorce. But nonetheless, I do want to hold up Jesus' expectation and desire for his people. And again, I want to reiterate what it is. It is that we as his people don't divorce. That's what he desires of us. Now, let me start with some good news. Now, you may have heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as non-Christians. If you've heard that, raise your hand. How many of you have heard that? Yeah, you've heard it because I've said it before, okay? But it's not really true. It's so funny. You know, we, we pick up things that, we pick up things and we say them. We think they're true. By the way, you cannot believe everything that's on the internet. <laughs> Just telling you, hey, you heard it here first. Do not believe everything that's on the internet. Partnering with George Barna, Harvard-trained social researcher, author Shanti Feldhein, in her book, The Good News About Marriage, re-examining the the data that was used in in that study that says Christians divorce at the same rate as as non-believers, 
what she found was that the way that people were classified was by religion, and so it just simply said Christian out there, and so people checked Christian or Muslim or nothing or whatever, and using that as their baseline, that's how they came to the conclusion that Christians and non-Christians divorce at the same rate. However, Shanti and George Barna and others, they found that if they simply added a qualifier, one qualifier of being active in your local church. What they found was that divorce rate dropped 27 to 50% among people who said they were Christians and they actively participated in a church. Now, Ann and I were talking about this, this talk for this morning and, and she was telling me something about, uh, you know, at the uh, crisis pregnancy homes, just every person that comes in there checks Christian on the box, checks Christian on the box. And that's what we find. Dr. Brad Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project, states that, and I quote, active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preference. Now listen to me carefully. The divorce rate is not 50% anymore. It did reach 50%, at least in some states. But the divorce rate runs about 33% overall in our, in our country. That means one out of, one out of every three couples is going to end in divorce. Um, for, for those of us that, that believe, believe in, in Christ, I mean, that drop, we're already at 33% less. You know, so, only one out of three of those of us that follow Christ statistically end in divorce. Now those statistics, I hope they, hope they encourage you. They did encourage me to know that we're not divorcing at the same rate as people who have no commitment to Christ whatsoever. Those, those things did encourage me. But nonetheless, you know, I think we need to be challenged on this issue of divorce. And that's what I want to do uh, today. So back to the text in front of us. What did Jesus mean? When he said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual morality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, historically, the traditional view of the church has been that Jesus says that his followers only have one legitimate before God, one legitimate reason for divorce. And, and that legitimate reason for divorce is sexual immorality. Now, honestly, that's the plain reading of the text, is it not? When you read the text, that seems to be what the text is saying. But I want to tell you, that's always bothered me. That's always bothered me. Now, let me tell you why it's always bothered me. It hasn't bothered me because Jesus would choose to limit divorce to sexual immorality. I mean, I think he would have every right to do that. But what's always bothered me is that 1 Corinthians 7, Paul apparently adds abandonment as a legitimate reason for divorce. In fact, the church has traditionally taught that there were two legitimate reasons for divorce. One of them was sexual immorality or adultery. The other one was abandonment by your partner. Now, what bothered me about this is how could Paul or anybody else add to Jesus' words that there's only one legitimate reason for divorce. 
In other words, if Jesus is saying the only legitimate reason for divorce is adultery, how can Paul come along and say, oh no, by the way, there's another one. It's abandonment over here in, uh, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. How could that happen? And, and so I don't care who you are. If Jesus is Lord, th- there is only one reason. If his words, if letting his words stand, there's only, if, if that's what Jesus means, you know, there can't be any other legitimate reasons for divorce. Uh, but the thought occurs to me, maybe that's not what Jesus meant in what he said here in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to try to unfold that. Now, let me say before I begin to share with you what I think Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5, it's different than what the traditional view of divorce has been. The traditional view has been that it's, it's, it's only adultery. And then, of course, we, we add Paul's words in there later on, abandonment. And... Um, that, that, that is not what I believe Jesus is seeking to answer or speak to in this Matthew passage. Now, I want to be very, very quick to say you do not have to agree with me. I may be wrong. I've actually prayed an awful lot. I've shared this with you before. It's not going to be anything new for, for those of you that have been a part of us for a long time because I've shared this before. But this is my understanding. Let me tell you, godly men who lead in the evangelical church in America would disagree with what I'm going to share with you. They would say there's only one legitimate reason for divorce, and that's or two, adultery and abandonment. Some would say it's only adultery. Others would say, others would say, and a very prominent, uh, famous evangelical pastor in our country says there is no divorce permitted whatsoever for any believer in the Lord Jesus. Okay, and uh, and what it's talking about when Jesus says only for adultery, he's not even talking about marriage. He's talking about the betrothal time. He's talking about engagement in Jewish life. And engagement, you could, you could divorce or you could separate under engagement for adultery, but that was the only reason. Let me share with you my perspective, and I want you to understand it whether you agree with it or not. In his studies... Or let me back up. I came across the work of David Instone Brewer a number of years ago. Uh, Dr. Instone Brewer is a senior research fellow, a technical officer at Tyndale House in Cambridge, and he's a rabbinical scholar. In other words, what he's done most of his life is study the rabbinical writings. And in this study, Dr. Instone Brewer documented that from the time of Moses on until Jesus came to earth, the Jews recognized a legitimate divorce for two reasons. One of them was divorce. And the other one was neglect. And under neglect, they had three parts, uh, providing food, providing shelter, and providing love. Now, they based their understanding on two verses from the law. One of them was Deuteronomy 24.1. I know this is kind of technical, but hang in there with me, okay? Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The word indecency there means literally means nakedness. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And then it goes on to say that if, she, if he does that... She's never allowed to marry him again. In other words, she marries somebody else, he marries somebody else, they die, they're not allowed to come back together again. And and so Jewish leadership, Jewish rabbinical scholars and all, they taught the Jewish people that there was divorce for adultery, divorce for sexual morality. Everybody follow me? That Deuteronomy passage is going to come back to play in just a moment. 
So uh, there was grounds for divorce for both men and women on sexual unfaithfulness. And the second set of verses is from Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. And this had to do with how a man treated his concubine wife, his slave wife. And it says, if he takes to himself another woman, by the way, he should never have done that, but if he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. She was free. Now, Jewish leadership understood those verses, and this is what they said. They said, you know, if God permits that for a slave wife, that must be true for a legitimate, the, the woman I marry kind of wife as well. And so the, the Jewish leadership said that there was legitimate divorce for abandonment in those areas, and they recognized those as legitimate reasons for divorce. However, not too long before Jesus ministry began, lawyers for the Hillite Pharisee party, the party of Hillel, they introduced a new form of divorce. Now listen carefully. I want you to understand this. You don't have to agree with me, but I want you to get it anyway. The Hillites, or the, the, the followers of Hillel, introduced another form of, of divorce. And this was, they called it the any cause divorce. And they got that from the Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 passage that I read you a moment ago. The one that says indecency. In the Hebrew, it says any cause nakedness. So that's literally how it reads. So uh, the Hillel Pharisees came out and said, you know, there's really not two reasons for legitimate divorce there. There's really, I mean, there's not one reason, there's two reasons. The first one is adultery, nakedness, but the second one is any cause. And they introduced what was called the any cause divorce. And uh, the any cause divorce, literally, you've heard this before, but they said that you could divorce, a man could divorce his wife for burning the toast. For having wrinkling skin. I mean, these are all things that record in pharisaical writings. Uh, he, they could divorce her for whatever reason he wanted. And they called it the any cause divorce from Deuteronomy chapter 24 to verse uh, 21. Now, other rabbis, the more conservative rabbis from uh, the Shemite uh, sect of rabbis or, or Pharisees, they said, no, that is not what that passage teaches. That passage does not teach that you can divorce for any cause. It does not teach that. It teaches that you can divorce only for adultery, only for the cause of adultery. And so there was this huge, huge debate going on. Most people, as you can imagine, preferred the Hillite way of understanding this because it freed them up to get divorces for whatever reason they wanted, and it kept them out of the embarrassing court appearances. Philo, a Jewish philosopher, used the any cause divorce for his divorce. Uh, Josephus names it as the type of divorce he used when he divorced his wife. By the middle of the first century, there really is no other mention of divorce other than the any cause divorce. And after Jerusalem fell in AD 70 and all the rabbinical writings, it was all talking about the any cause divorce. But in Jesus' ministry time, the debate raged about the any cause divorce. So now here's what I believe. I believe what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount was not necessarily seeking to limit legitimate divorce to just adultery, but was making it clear that the any cause divorce of his day was sin, and that as kingdom people, we should reject that notion. And thus, Paul, when he adds another reason for divorce, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, isn't contradicting Jesus. He's actually, he's actually picking up on what would have been a common understanding of divorce, and that is that if there is neglect or abandonment, you know, that would be a legitimate reason for divorce. 
As in Jesus' day, the any cause divorce rules in our country. During the 1800s, the divorce rate in our land was 5%. It started at 3% in the beginning of the 1800s. It rose to 7% by the end. So let's average that to 5% in the 1800s. By, by the mid-1900s, it, would, it was up to 50% at times. One of the reasons why we've said that the divorce rate is 50% is because it hit 50% before it dropped back, back down. I'm not sure... Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly all the reasons why people divorce, but prior to 1969, there was no such thing as an any cause divorce in our land. There was no such thing. We call it today, we don't call it any cause, we call it a no fault divorce, right? No fault divorce came to America in 1969, started in California. The last state, it's, it's, it's the law of the land in every state now. Every state has adopted a no-fault, or if you would, an any-cause divorce. The last state was in 2010. That was surprising to me. It was 2010 when the last state adopted a no-fault divorce. That was the state of New York. Prior to that, in our country, there was only legitimate grounds for divorce on, on the grounds of adultery, abandonment, and cruelty. So, again, again, I, I, I understand that, you know, people might not agree with me, that's fine, but I want you to understand, I, this is what I believe Jesus is trying to answer, trying to speak about in this Matthew passage. I don't think he's trying to say, hey, listen, the only legitimate type of divorce is for adultery. I think he's addressing the problem that was existing in his day, which is, which is true, the any cause divorce or, or what it says in Deuteronomy that it's just adultery. And I think he's addressing the just adultery. Uh, issue. But now, let's dive beneath the surface because, you know, like I told you, I think Jesus talked more about, uh, about divorce than just what's written there for us. But just like John went back to anger as the root of, uh, of murder, and Micah talked about lust as the root of adultery, you know, when we talk about divorce, we've kind of got to dive under divorce, and, and we need to talk about marriage because it's at the root, right? It's what we really need to understand. And what I want to do, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 19 because Jesus addresses this issue of divorce with, I think, greater clarity, with more detail as he's confronted again by Pharisees in this particular, in this particular issue. And so what I want to do is I'm going to read you Matthew 19. I want to share with you several things that Jesus says about marriage and divorce. And I believe all of us can agree with the things, whether you disagree or agree with me on what I just said to you. There's some things that I believe all of us can really grab hold of and believe. All right, here's the first one. Marriage was God's creation. It's his construct. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, my first point here when talking about marriage from Jesus' perspective is that marriage was God's creation, God's idea. Notice that Jesus says that he who created them. 
Jesus points them back to the fact that marriage is God's creation. People were created by God, and the very institution of marriage was created and designed by God. God made it. And we don't have any right to change it. We don't have any right to make it different. Our culture today is seeking to redefine marriage in a way that has never been the case. Today in our culture, we recognize two men marrying. We recognize two women marrying. But, but that is not marriage by God's definition. Now, that might be a legal marriage, but that is not marriage as God defined it. God made the marriage institution to be one between a male and a female. You can no more marry somebody of the same gender uh, than you can an animal, okay? The human-animal marriage is not recognized by law in any state, in any country, in anywhere. But you know, uh, pet and people wedding specialists, a website uh, on the internet, there's a lady who's licensed to perform marriages, and she has married 100 people to their pets via that website, There are court cases out in our country now where people are seeking to have the court recognize a legitimate marriage between them and their pet. Now, these folks get a certificate, but they're not recognized by the government. But here's my point. You know, it'll probably happen. It'll probably happen. We will probably have, at some point, a legal wedding between a person and their pet. We, we will probably happen, we will probably have in our country legal marriages that recognize a plurality of people, not just a man and a wife. We'll have two men and a woman. We'll have a man and three wives are married and be legally recognized by the state as a marriage. Again, that, that might be legally recognized as a marriage, but listen to what I'm saying. That's not going to be true legitimate marriage. It's not marriage as God defines it. You can say two plus two is five, but that doesn't make it so. Marriage is God's concept. It's God's construct. He defines it. Why did God give us marriage? Three reasons. Number one, he gave us marriage for personal flourishing. He gave you marriage so that you you would benefit personally. When Adam comes along, God creates him Eve and says, and he says, here's your helpmate. Now, I don't, I don't believe that God means that women were created to somehow help us and, and, and uh, apart from us helping them. I think God created us complementarian. He, he created us in a, as a husband and a wife to complement and to help one another. It's not just that my wife helps me. I'm to help my wife. It was for personal flourishing. Marriage was given for family flourishing, for familial flourishing. This is, I was going to say Malachi, (laughs) but it's Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. I've been practicing saying Malachi all week. Anyway, just to get a laugh. Uh, Malachi, Malachi, (laughs) Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. Listen, this is another thing you do, God speaking to the Jews. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. So the, the Jews were just weeping at the altar because God wasn't listening to them. And then he says in verse 14, and you ask why? Listen, he's going to tell him why. Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of the Spirit? What is God seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. Here's here's what God was telling the Jews. I gave you a wife because one of the things that I desired from you as a couple is is that you would produce a godly offspring. You would produce children 
that love me and follow me. That, that was one of the desires I had for the flourishing of your family. I, um, you know, I thought about this this week as I was, as I was going through that and considering it. Uh, you know, the Bible says, blessed children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Blessed is he who's got a quiver full of them. And here, here's what God was saying, that our children are, our children are to be our arrows to use in culture and in this world as we lead our children to follow Jesus. We're, we're actually able to send our children out into this world as, as emissaries for Christ to affect this world. God gave us marriage for the flourishing of your family. He gave you a marriage for the stability for your children that you might produce godly children who follow and love God. And then the third reason that God gave us marriage, I believe, is for societal flourishing. And, and I don't have any verses that I can point to, but that, that God, that the family really is the building block of society. But it, it, I'm just going to, I'm going to appeal to logic. Google it, and every secularist and every man of faith, every theist and every non-theist even says that family is the building block of society. That the well-being and the flourishing of society depends on families that are doing well. And everybody's recognizing that, whether you're a man of faith or not. John Rush Dooney, and, I, and, I, and I'm not at all advocating all that John stood for, but John Rush Dooney said this, quote, God has set up three basic institutes in, the, in society, the family, the state, and the church. The family came first in the Garden of Eden. The state of human government was set up after the flood, and the church was established at Pentecost, Pentecost after uh, Jesus ascended back into heaven. Historically and biblically, the family is the basic unit and building block of society. If the family fails to function as God intended, society crumbles. And I believe we see that everywhere. We see that in just every culture. The demise of culture begins with the demise of the family. So I know I've belabored this point an awful lot, and I promise I'll go through the other ones quicker. But, but Jesus is, is intent on us understanding that when God created us, this is how it was meant to be. This is what God designed. This is what God desires. The importance of marriage in our own lives and in our children's lives, and even in society, is paramount. Number two, marriage was meant to be permanent. Divorce was never, never, never a part of God's plan from the beginning. Marriage was meant to be indissolvable, everyone. The Pharisees asked Jesus, why did Moses, why did Moses then in the law establish divorce? And Jesus, Jesus answers them and says, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. Now they asked the question, why did, Mo, why did God, excuse me, why did Moses command divorce? And Jesus says, it's not that he commanded divorce at all. He permitted divorce because it was never God's desire from the beginning. Now, some folks try to pit Moses against God, but I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can do that. So listen to what I'm going to say here. Some people say, well, Moses got it wrong and he permitted divorce, but that was not what God wanted. And Jesus is correcting Moses and he's correcting the Old Testament law. Man, I find that difficult to do. If I'm going to say Moses acted on his own when he enacted this law, and that's not the will of God somehow, you don't have a problem with that. Then what other parts did Moses enact that weren't God's law either, right? So I don't think that, that Jesus is pitting Moses against God. I think what Jesus is trying to say is that Moses permitted divorce under, under the leadership of God. He permitted divorce because of the hardness or the evilness of our heart, but that was never what God intended. Sin has, sin has hardened us. Sin has taken God's ideal design and it's, and it's destroyed it so that it's broken. And divorce in our country and divorce in our world and divorce in our lives 
is just an illustration of that brokenness. Everybody follow me? And so I believe when Jesus said God permitted divorce, or Moses permitted divorce, I think Jesus is not saying Moses permitted it, but God doesn't permit it. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I think he's saying God, Moses permitted it through the Lord. He permitted it because we are evil people, and God recognized as, as a safety valve for our evilness that there had to be some level of divorce to deal with the evilness of man's heart. And I believe that's what Jesus meant. But here's Jesus' point. That is not God's desire. That's not God's will. That's not what God wants of us. Our marriages are to be permanent. Number three, marriage was meant to be monogamous. My wife said, why in the world are you including this one in here? Because the Jews of Jesus' day, except for the Qumranic sect, all were polygamous. All accepted polygamy marriages. That doesn't mean they all had polygamy marriages, but they accepted that. The patriarchs had polygamous marriages. Jesus is saying, my standard, God's standard is um, one woman, one man. Number four, God never commanded divorce in any situation. The Pharisees asked, why does Moses command that she be given or he be given a certificate of divorce? Assuming, I guess, a wife could divorce, but it was a different process. Why why was Moses commanding that a certificate of divorce be given? And Jesus corrects them and says, Moses permitted divorce. The Jews taught at that point that if your spouse was unfaithful, you had to divorce them. Jesus said, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to divorce for adultery. You don't have to divorce actually for any cause. In fact, I think what Jesus is trying to say is that his desire for you would be to reconcile your marriage. To reconcile your marriage. You know, the Apostle Paul, when we get to the New Testament, one of his letters, I think it's Romans, he says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Remember that verse? He's recognizing that it always, it doesn't always depend on you. I cannot be at peace if you're going to just, if you're going to turn against me and there's, and you're not going to be willing to reconcile. I can't do, but as much as it depends on me, I need to reconcile. I, I need to, I need to be at peace with all men. Now here's what I think Jesus is saying. As much as it depends on you, 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 you don't divorce. You're my follower. As much as it depends on you, make marriage permanent. Work on that marriage. Do not divorce. Now let me summarize what I've said to this point. Mar- I'm, almost, I'm almost finished. I'm, I'm down to the practical part, okay? Marriage is of vital importance, and everything in us should fight to preserve our marriages, to make our marriages better. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear that there is no such thing as divorce for any cause. And again, you can, you can add in there if you disagree on that. But in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear there's no such thing as divorce for any cause. And even in the toughest marriages where sexual unfaithfulness has taken place, God doesn't demand divorce. Uh, but but he, his desire would be for reconciliation. And can I just say this? In the course of my lifetime, I have watched numerous marriages suffer that hard thing of infidelity. And in most cases, I have seen those marriages heal. So as members of God's kingdom, let me end this, this talk this morning by giving you some practical helps to assist us in embracing the priority and value of marriage and aid us in fending off divorce. Now here's where I'm going to get personal. And uh, here it is. Let's go. To the unmarrieds. I'm going to speak to the unmarrieds first. Okay. So Olivia. <laughs> I don't know where Nathan is, but anyway, uh, Timothy. Stephen, for the unmarrieds, here's number one. Don't live as a married couple when you're not. 
Don't live as a married couple when you're not. Listen, we live in a society that's bracing the idea that living together is normative. Fewer and fewer couples are getting married, but instead are opting to cohabitate together. To the believer in Jesus, this is what I say to you this morning. If you're doing that, stop. And if you're not doing that, whatever you do, please don't buy into the lie because it's a lie. And and so so my challenge to you today is don't buy into the lie. If you've bought into it, repent, change. Now, now I'm going to give you two reasons. Number one, first, as a follower of Jesus, living together as a married couple when you're not married is a sin. It's immoral. It's wrong. God does not desire that of you. Jesus died died for that sin. How can you continue to live in sin like that when Jesus died for you? So stop, stop that. It's sin. Number two, you're minimizing your chances of having a successful marriage. For some of you, if you choose this later on, listen to what I'm going to say to you. You are minimizing your, 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 you're minimizing your chance for a successful marriage. People who live together before they get married are 33% less likely to be successful in marriage. Why? Because, you know, marriage is built on commitment. It's built on making a decision to make it permanent from the very start. And if that's not your heart to start with, no wonder. You know, my experience has been that people who live together and I've actually officiated at their marriages, at their weddings, you know, I've seen several families, their, their marriages dissolve soon after that. So I really want to, I want to challenge you. Listen, to the unmarrieds, number one, don't live as a married person if you're not. Number two, when you marry unmarried, when you marry, come to marriage with an absolute commitment to the permanence of marriage. I mean, when you, stay, when you walk down that aisle, ladies, as the bride, and men, when you're standing here at the front as the groom, and you're waiting for your bride to come, listen, let there be no thought in your mind or heart that there is any, there is any, there's any opportunity. This is my spouse for life, and I'm going to work on this marriage, and I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it work because it honors God, but I'm going to make it work because I love the person coming down the aisle or I love the person waiting at the end of the aisle for me. You know, so, so come at it with a purpose. I, I, you know, I'll say more in just a second. Tangentially, with that in mind, here's some, marry in the Lord. Unmarried. Listen, if, you're, if, if marriage is to be permanent, why would you marry? Why would you couple yourself to someone who's not following Jesus like you? And so, so to the unmarried, I, I would say, marry in the Lord. Why? Because marriage is permanent. Here's another thing I'd say. Don't, this is tangential to this point of, uh, of um, what was my point again? Oh, being committed to marriage. Don't be in any haste to walk down the aisle. Don't be in any haste to walk down the aisle. Marriage is always hard. But we are called to die to self for, for one another. And let me tell you something. You know, when, when we don't know each other, we're making it that much harder. We can make marriage that much harder than it actually has to be. And every married couple in here will tell you it's hard. Okay? So unmarried, remember these. Now to the marrieds. Three things and I'm finished. Now to the marrieds. Number one, never stop investing emotionally in your marriage. Never stop. Ann and I dated for two weeks, married in three months. Do not recommend it. That's why I could go back up and say, don't be in a haste to walk down the aisle. 
Okay, because Ann and I did that, and it, and it really it cost us. It made it that much harder. We discovered after a day <laughs> of marriage that we weren't exactly who we thought we were, right? And uh, and it made for heartache that could have been avoided, I believe, had we at least dated for longer, right? I think some of that could have been avoided for that. My my point my point is is this in telling you that because of the difficulties, uh, I, I gave up. On our marriage. At some point in my, in my life, I gave up on our marriage. I remember saying to myself, well, we'll just live as roommates, but I'm going to quit investing in our marriage. Emotionally, I hardened my heart. And since then, I've told this truth many times to some of you in, in private, one-on-one. But I quit investing. And if you quit investing, I want to tell you what's going to happen. Your marriage will not stay as you think it is now. It will not stay that way. Your marriage will dry up, your marriage will degenerate, and eventually your marriage will disintegrate. Ours did, to the point, I've never confessed this publicly, but to the point that I really wanted out. So if you think you can give up trying and investing in your marriage and you make it, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. If you're here this morning and you've given up emotionally investing in your marriage, it's time for you to start giving back into that marriage. Because listen, God's will for you and me is to never divorce. It's to never divorce. And the way to fend off divorce in my life is to get underneath the root of divorce, and it's my marriage. It's investing in my marriage. So if you have given up on your marriage and you're not investing and you've said, hey, we're just, we're just going to live in this platonic kind of spot where we are and you do your thing and I'll do my thing and we're just going to live there, I promise you, your marriage will disintegrate. Number two, never, never stop fighting for your marriage. Again, if you've invested, if you've stopped investing in your marriage, you've stopped fighting for your marriage. But for the other spouse, then, for the other person, and if you haven't gotten there, here is for both of you, but never stop fighting for your marriage. I can remember wanting to go to marriage counseling, but Anne wasn't willing to go. This is prior to me saying, hey, I'm done. But as time went on and our marriage deteriorated, something woke up in Anne, and she began to fight for our marriage. And she wanted to go to counseling but I was not willing at that point. And I can remember one day she said to me, and this is my paraphrase, and by the way, I've asked Anne permission to share these things. I'm not sharing these just off the cuff. I remember one day she said to me, my paraphrase, I know you want me to throw in the towel and give up on our marriage, but I won't. You do what you have to do, but not with my blessing. And that was, that was, that's not exactly what she said, but that was, that was the essence of what she said. She basically said, I'm, I'm, I'm not giving up on our marriage. You can give up if you want, but I'm not giving up. I'm fighting for our marriage. Thursday was our 32nd anniversary. And I honestly believe that we don't, I don't think we would have had a 32nd anniversary if it wasn't for Anne's unwillingness to give up on our marriage. That brings me to the third point. As much as it depends on you, as much as it depends on you, be willing to get help. Own your own junk and change. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. I've learned after 32 years of marriage, I cannot control Anne. I can't change her. 
I can't make her do anything or be anything. The only person that I can control is me. And I've said this many times, and I don't do a very good job of that. And I think I'd probably get a hearty amen from all of you when it comes to, to, to just controlling yourselves, right? But I can't control her. All I can control is me. I'm so thankful for a dear friend. Uh, he's, a, he's a trained psychologist. He wasn't supposed to be here this morning, but he is. I'm talking about David over there. And uh, David one time pulled me aside, and you know we were sitting there on the couch together. And he, I guess he could see something in me, and he said, Jimmy, he said, if you would like to talk, I, I'd, I'd love to listen. He later recommended counseling for me personally, and, and from that I was able to see my own lack of investing in my marriage was killing it. I was able to see that in spite, as much as I wanted to blame her, I was the one killing our marriage because I was the one that was no longer investing. I had to, I had to own my own junk, and I had to change. I honestly do believe that some marriages can fail because one person in the relationship is nearly fully responsible for that failure. But in most of our cases, listen to what I'm going to say, in most of our cases, it's not due to just one of you or one of us in the marriage. It's not just due to one of us. It's it's because both of us are not doing what we need to do. And, uh, but... But I have to be willing to do the hard work, and most of us are unwilling to do this, do the hard work of self-examining myself and seeing what I need to change in my life. All I can see is the other person's faults. All I can see is what the other person is doing or not doing in the relationship. And, And again, listen, you know, you and I can see maybe the other person, but that's not where you need to be looking. The person you need to be looking at is your your own heart, your own stuff. So one of the best ways that you can invest in the priority and value of marriage and help fend off divorce in your relationship, not buying into the lie that there's such a thing as an any-cause divorce or no-fault divorce, and that just because you're out of love or you don't like each other like you used to or you don't like the way this person does this or that or they don't listen to you, those are any-cause divorces. You know, the best way to fend off that kind of mindset that leads you down a road you don't want to go is by willing to take an honest look at yourself and get an outside opinion if you need to and change where you need to change. Deal with yourself. What might happen in my marriage if I were to change? What might happen in my marriage if I were the one to change? Instead of waiting on him to change, or instead of waiting on her to change, and then I'll change. I sat in the counselor's office, and he told me he meets people like me often. He said, people that are stuck. That's what he said. Not, may, not able to make a decision one way or the other. And that was me. And, and God began to speak to me in that moment in the, in the counselor's chair. And I remember God clearly said to me, and I mean, this is, and again, I've shared this one-on-one with some of you, but God began to speak to me and he said, well, what are you going to do? You've been, you've been trying to, to disassociate yourself. You've been trying to end this marriage, but you can't. So what are you going to do? I'm not going to let you go. And I remember sitting there and I remember I said, God, I'm going to go home and I'm going to reinvest. I'm going to reinvest. And I walked out of the counselor's office 
and went home determined to invest again in my relationship with Ann. And, uh, man, we have an awesome marriage now, don't we, baby? <laughs> a little exaggeration there, but, um, <laughs> but you know what? We, we have recovered. We have recovered. And we have a good marriage. And a marriage where she's investing in me and I'm investing in her. And, and you know, we, we've made it back. I always think that's the grace of God. We've made it back. I want to say to you this morning, you know, Jesus said, I don't want my followers to divorce. I don't want you to divorce. I don't want you to choose this easy route and culture of an any cause divorce. I don't want you to do that. Are there some legitimate reasons for divorce? Yeah, but I think probably most of the reasons that we applied in our lives are probably, they're the any cause divorce. They're not the, they're not the kind that God would have legitimately agreed this is a reason for divorce. I think most of our choices are the any cause, no fault divorce. And so if you've, if you've gone there, I mean, it's in the past. You can't change that now. It's a new day. But for those of us that are not there, here's what I want to say to you. Don't, don't go there. It's not what God's desire is. It's not God's will for you. God's will is that you invest and you change and you own your own junk so that God can work in your marriage to restore it. You reinvest. Those of you that have quit investing in your marriage, and maybe unlike Ann and me, you, you've, you've quit investing and you've managed to find this spot where you're just doing your thing and she's just doing her thing or he's just doing his thing and somehow or another you've managed to live that way. I, I mean, I, I'm not really trying to upset the apple cart there, but that is not what God desires of your marriage. And I really want to challenge you today. What do you need to do with today's talk? Let's bow our heads. Lord, you know I've asked you to protect my words and and it's even kind of scary going out on a limb and and challenging the traditional view of what what people thought that Jesus meant there. But, uh, But the truth is, Lord, we can all agree that your desire for us is flourishing marriages. You desire for us to have marriages that honor you, marriages that point people to you, marriages that help us and encourage us and bless us. Lord, this morning, how I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. Lord, not to look at our spouses, but to look at ourselves, those of us that are married, to look at ourselves and, and just say, what do I need to do? Lord, how do I need to change? How do I need to love more like you? How do I need, what junk do I need to own up to? Lord, I thank you that in Christ you are, you can and are willing to rebuild your God's design and God's ideal in, in our marriages. And I'm so grateful for that. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. And, and again, there may be some brothers and sisters here this morning whose marriages are really struggling right now. Father, would you give them the grace to seek help? Would you give them grace to desire to, to not throw in the towel, but to, but to flourish again? Lord, I thank you publicly for, for working in Anne and my life, Lord, to, to strengthen our marriage and to, and to you know, bring us back to a place of, uh, of wholeness. I thank you for that. Lord, and it's just a, a testimony, Lord, that it's not just in mine and Anne's life that you want to do this, but it's in, in all of our lives that you're able to do this. So, Lord, would you do it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.